What's up, everybody? This is your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and I'm putting together another compilation episode today. And all these episodes that I put together are more so on the side of kind of working out 101, training 101. And yes, it can sound like it'd be a little bit more to beginner, but a lot of these episodes actually, you know, mention things that you should be doing as a beginner, but then also elaborating on, say, the progression of an exercise. And one of the episodes that I talk about is deadlifting. And deadlifting is one of those exercises that everyone does, no matter if they're a beginner or intermediate or an advanced individual in the gym. So I wanted to compile all these episodes together to kind of give you a workout guide 101 and kind of shed some light on you know, questions that you might be asking yourself when you're going to the gym. So here's another compilation episode on working out 101. Here we go. Let's get into the good stuff for this show. So if you've been following me the last couple weeks, I did a couple posts about um, doing an assessment for my sister-in-law where she was complaining that she had pain in her hip while squatting. And, um, you know, I got a lot of good feedback. People were asking me questions like, oh, what did you do? Like, what assessment did you give her? So I thought I would just like break it all down here because, you know, writing it out and doing a couple videos doesn't do it justice. So to kind of give some background to um, the client. So I'm going to use this almost like a case study. So my sister-in-law, um, she is 22, 23 years old. So, you know, young, hasn't had any kind of serious injury. She used to uh, run high-level track in high school, stopped, and now she's kind of on the quest to get back into shape again like she was back in high school. So she started working out on her own and has been kind of following the stuff that I've been putting out. And um, one day she noticed that when she was squatting, she had like a sharp pain pulling through her, what was it, left hip? Yep, left hip. And... um, she asked me, hey, like, this happened, like, what should I do? And automatically, like, any coach out there should know this. When you hear a client say, hey, this really hurts when I do this, you stop, and then you refer out. Um, so her being like every other client did not go to physio or Cairo because clients never <laughs> listen to advice that you give them unless you, like, really hammer it through. So I told her, okay, obviously you're not going to go to physio or Cairo, but... Let me like take a look at you, see what we can, you know, kind of figure out, and hopefully I can help you. So the one thing that I got online was, you know, people ask me, okay, what assessment are you doing with clients? So, you know, over the years, I've taken so many certifications, um, watched a bunch of different DVDs and lectures, and been to conferences, and I've kind of developed my own little assessment um, system. And, you know, if I actually put in a lot of time and effort, I will take about 30 minutes to get through that assessment. So if I had to explain what the assessment is, it's a combination of the FMS, uh, TPI, Eric Cressy's Assess and Correct, and some other ones I've picked up over the years and kind of meshed it all together to kind of give me a a blueprint of how this individual moves and functions. And this is what I tell 
you know, a new client that comes in that's a, and I tell them that, all right, so when we do this assessment, all this is going to give me is a blueprint of how you move. And also it's going to give me any movement that you experience pain or it just doesn't move that well. And they're like, oh, okay. And I tell them right off the bat, I'm like, I can't diagnose what the hell's going on in your body other than, hey, this is tight. Hey, when you do this, it hurts. Let's not do that. And let's refer you out to a physio or chiro. So for all the newer coaches listening, I would highly recommend get, getting your FMS level one, then look at the level two. Also look at TPI, which is also influenced heavily by the FMS. Same kind of principles and concepts, but it doesn't have a scoring system and it's a pass or fail. And that's one of the things I've been telling um, my intern I have right now is that, you know, the FMS has a scoring system, but I personally have shied away from it because now there's so much, you know, if I had a client, I scored their FMS and they moved away and they went to another coach and I said, hey, this client scores a 18 out of 21, but then the new coach um, FMSs them and they get a 15 and they're like, hey, their squat was actually a two, not a three. So there's a lot of room for error on that part. So I just look at, can they do the movement? Yes or no. Do they have trouble with it? Let's break it down layer by layer and figure it out. So that's how my assessment kind of works is, you know, I use the building blocks of the FMS and say their squat doesn't look that great. I peel off layers to figure out what the hell's going on. And that gives me more information. And the other assessments I picked up over the years, I put those into the layers to figure it out. So an example is, um, you know, the FMS squat, you have them in an overhead position, they squat down, it looks horrible. I go, okay, let's elevate the heels, which is done in the FMS. It improves a little bit. I'm like, okay, I take the dowel away, cross their arms in front, kind of like the Arnold Schwarzenegger front squat. It improves, okay, maybe there's um, something with uh, shoulders, maybe there's something with hips or something with ankles. Next thing, I check ankle mobility, which is from the TPI, and then it gives me more information. Um, and then from there, knowing that, say, they had some sort of, like, shoulder issue, I go into, like, an external internal rotation assessment to see if they have anything there. And it just layer by layer, right? So I take the backbone of the FMS, and with each correlating movement, I've added my own little assessments to it to give me more information. And I think as you get into the industry, I think you should do that. I think you should experiment with other assessments to give you more information and that's going to better your experience with your client and your client's going to appreciate that extra attention. Now, going back to my sister-in-law, there was a couple things I noticed. So in her squat, um, there wasn't a sharp pain. She just said that, you know, I kind of, I could feel it and she would shift her weight to the opposite side. So obviously that's a movement pattern that she developed because ever since she injured her hip or whatever the hell is going on, um, her body now found a way to do the movement differently so it won't experience pain. And that's what the body usually tends to do is whatever you injure, you injure your ankle, your whole body is going to change your gait to not put so much pressure on the ankle to cause pain. So your body will try to maneuver around pain and you can kind of use the same concept. So I came up with this idea, like, you know, if your body naturally does that with any kind of injured joint, 
why not you as a coach do the same thing with your programming, like move away from the injury but still address it at the same time? Um, so as we went further along, um, you know, we checked shoulders. Shoulders were fine. Um, her uh, T-spine rotation left and right was fine. Um, when we got to the active straight leg raise, she got a three on each side. If you're scoring it, like no issues whatsoever. I'm like, okay, it's not a stability issue. And then we went into the toe touch. She had a little bit of a struggle to get down to her toes. I'm like, okay, maybe it's a mobility problem. And then I checked her hip internal and external rotation. And honestly, like both sides were uh, pretty tight, but the injured side, she definitely had um, a huge restriction. And to a certain point of internal rotation of her left hip, she felt that same pain. And I'm like, okay, now we figured out, like, whatever you're doing internally on your hip, there's, there's shit going on. And I just told her, like, this is as far as I can get to kind of figure out what the hell's going on with your body. So this is where I would love to send you to a chiro or physio to kind of figure out what you should be doing. And then I... Um, Took it a step further and checked, like, glute meat strength. You know, who knew that, like, there's no surprise that on her left side, which is her injured side, super weak compared to her non-injured side. So I'm like, okay, there's that too. And then we did a video uh, assessment of her squat, and I looked at it, and, like, I posted the video, so if you go on my social media, you'll see this. If you look at her posture... She's in such a lordotic state that you can literally see how tight her hip flexors are. So she has that arch already. I'm like, okay. She has really, really tight hip flexors. And when we did the hurdle step, she had to externally rotate her left and right hip to get over that hurdle. I'm like, okay. She's also running on her own. So the fact that she has limited hip flexion to be able to run her strides, she's probably always going into that, that internal rotation run that I've seen a lot of people do when they're tight on their hips. And I'm like, okay, well, you're practicing a dysfunctional pattern over and over again, and then you combine it with some like weight training on top of it, then yeah, your body's about to like implode and injure itself. And then when we further looked at... Um, her video of her squad, if you notice like the before and after video I posted, you know, she has great depth and then she also has that butt wink and, you know, it's a heavily debated thing. Like, you know, should you butt wink? Should you not? And in my opinion, when it comes to people dealing with pain, maybe you shouldn't go to full depth that you can. I think it's, she has more of a pelvic, pelvic floor dysfunction when it comes to stability because her hips are all over the place when it comes to core stability um so when i looked at her squat i'm like okay we're gonna give you some stability that you need i'm gonna teach you where your range is like i i use the analogy that you know you have a car your body's a car and there's so many different moving parts for it to all the work so in my sister-in-law, bless her situation, 
her breaks didn't work. So the fact that she would go past 90 degrees in her squat, have her butt wing, her hip would hurt. She just didn't know when to use her brakes. So I wanted to rearrange how her brain transmits information to her body to tell her body to stop at certain points of her squat and learn how to use the brakes and stop and then come back up in your squat. So this was a sequence. I wanted to have her learn how to breathe because if you've been reading anything to do with fitness and health, breathing is huge. So that's step, like baby step number one. So I got her in a supine position, knees up, one hand on her belly, one hand on her chest. And I told her, I want you to breathe into your hand on your belly 10 times. No surprise here, she could not do it. So after some coaching cues and after explaining what I wanted her to do, she started getting the idea. I'm like, okay, perfect. Now we're building a little bit more awareness of what I want you to do. Then I got her into a quadruped position, so a bird dog position, wider with her feet, and I put um, like two tension relief system balls or blue balls or whatever you want to call them on her lower back. I told her where to find her neutral spine, how I want her pelvis because I didn't want her to be arching so much. And we did simple rock backs with the breathing and telling her where to stop before her hips would do that butt wink. We did that a couple times. Now she's getting some feedback with the balls on her lower back. If it rolls back and forth, I want those to stay still. Now she has that external feedback of where she needs to stop. Then we went into a half kneel position and I got her to do a simple hip flexor rock back with the idea of her back foot on the toe, tilting her pelvis forward, squeezing her bum. And I made sure on that left side where her knee was down, I asked her, do you have pain? She's like a little bit. I'm like, okay, just ease off. Don't go into that zone where you feel pain. Just rock back gently, and at the same time, we are still practicing her breathing. Now we're getting things you know, going. And the last thing I got her to do was something called the face-the-wall squat. So this is a corrective exercise I give to so many of my clients. For those who don't know what the face-the-wall squat is, is you literally face the wall with your body, and you squat as low as possible without your face, your knees uh, touching, and this will give you an idea of where you're allowed to squat for depth. So obviously if you go toes touching to the wall, it's gonna be really difficult. So I tell people, you know, find the happy medium. Don't be too far off that you can squat easily. Don't be so close that you can't squat at all. Find that middle ground. So we found her middle ground and like who knew, she would stop right around 90 degrees in her squat and I'm like, okay, we're gonna do 10 reps of that and I want you to remember where you stop like make mental notes every time when you stop at the bottom and then drive up with that breathing that we've been practicing she's like okay then with all that we did only one set of everything i'm like okay let's film your squat again and if you go back to that video her squat improved tremendously i'm like boom you see this this is what you need to be doing in your squat to make sure that you're not going to injure yourself again and we did a couple of things also with her foot position right because she would usually squat with her toes straight and again if you know anything about the fms squatting with your toes straight is going to make it really difficult for your hips to go into um good depth so we went a little bit wider of her stance we 
actually rotated her left foot outwards a little bit more than her right because of her injury. And when we had her finished product of her squat, she had no pain squatting. So I'm like, perfect. This is what I want you to do every time you squat. So those little correctives could be part of her warm-up. And then now she has that confidence, knows how to use her brakes, aka, you know, in her car, and she's able to work out without pain. And I think this is what good coaches should kind of get across to their clients that, hey, you know, if you injured your shoulder or your knee or whatever have you, there's still a chance for the coach to figure out a way to have you exercising without pain. And I think if coaches tip the time to figure out how people move and do a little like extra assessment to figure out different ways to have them move, then why not have them exercise and at the same time still take them to physio and Cairo to give you more information. Right? I always tell all my clients, your body's a giant puzzle, um, like a giant puzzle. The more pieces you can find to add to it, then you'll have the broader picture. So, you know, me doing this assessment only gave me, say, two more pieces to the puzzle. But then if she ended up going to Physio and Cairo and they did their magic of whatever they're doing, they can figure out a lot more pieces, send that information to me, and now I have a very individualistic approach to this client. Now, that was a lot of information, and maybe for the newer coaches, they were just like, what the fuck are you even talking about? Which is okay. And this is what I was telling my intern, is that you know when I first got certified through the FMS, you know I'd take people through the FMS, and I'm like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. It took time to see patterns, see like common trends that you know this client had the same thing with this client, and then over the years of learning other stuff about the FMS and movement, it all kind of came together, and now I have a really good understanding of it. So the more you can assess people, even filming them when you're assessing them, so you can make mental notes, see what worked, see what uh, didn't and you'll have a pretty solid foundation of how to assess people. Um, so what I'm going to get into today to stop working, there we go. Um, this idea behind progressions and regressions um, in training. So this is going to be valuable to both coaches who are listening to my show and the fitness fanatics that listen to my show just that are eager to learn more and more and more. So, you know, I think as a coach, we tend to overthink things all the freaking time. Like, we are always eager to learn something new. We're always eager to learn a new exercise. We're always eager to learn whatever new thing is out there and start implementing it with our clients on Monday, which is great. Like, you're, it's awesome to see... Um, coach is so passionate about something new, but at the same time, you should follow this whole idea and principle behind, you know, keep it simple, stupid. Because I think a lot of times when, you know, I sit down and write programs for my clients, I'm like, okay, what's an exercise they haven't done in a very long time? And it becomes like this almost like circus act. And then I have to like take myself back and be like, what the hell am I doing? This person just needs the basics. And 
I think as a newer coach, when you get into the industry, you tend to always go to the flashiest thing. If there's a new piece of equipment that's, you know, been advertising all over your Facebook and you're like, oh man, that's so cool. I'm going to buy it and I'm going to start using it on Monday. You don't really need it. Like people overthink exercise so much, even from a perspective, a, from a person that is not a coach and just wants to exercise on their own, you know, they'll see a cool core exercise with the TRX and they're like, oh my God, I need to be doing that in order to get a six pack. When in reality, you should probably be sticking to bird dogs and dead bugs until you can progress to something more advanced like that. And, you know, I've been having this conversation with uh, my intern. Uh, Shout out to Emily if you are listening to this. Um, I took on a coach to kind of mentor under me and learn as much as possible. And a lot of times when we were talking about programming, um, you got to keep it simple. Like, you don't understand how simple programming can be where you'll see the progression you want your client to be at and at the same time all their aches and pains go away so this is really interesting anytime i get a new client um, coming in they all complain about oh my knee kind of hurts oh my hip kind of hurts and sometimes my shoulder does this weird thing and then my low back sometimes gives out i'm like perfect like this is almost every single client that i've ever taken in and they've told me this in their little consultation with me So then I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to do the same thing I always do. Like every single person that comes in when I train them goes through the same templated um, program unless there are some like really specific things I need to work with the individual because they have an injury. But every single client on day one goes through the same program that I give everybody else when they start. It's learning how to activate your core with the bird dog and dead bug. Um... I teach everybody how to hinge properly, so deadlifting. I teach everybody how to do a T-Rex row because every posterior exercise is really important for the general population. And I teach them how to squat properly and what the difference between a squat and a hinge is. And then I teach them how to do a split squat or a reverse lunge to learn, um, you know, unilateral uh, exercises. And that's it. Like, really simple. There's no magic to it. It's really simple. And they follow that for a month. And then after that first month, I add a little bit more to it. So building upon layers. That's how I program. And doing that in that kind of order will bulletproof your client in the long term. They're not going to feel super sore every single time they come into the gym they're going to progress at the rate you want them to and they're going to be pain free so then you know three four months down the road i'll ask that same client that came in complaining about their aches and pains and they'll they always give me the same answer they go they they'll just go into like you know what i haven't really thought about my lower back issue my shoulder issue and my knee issue and i'm like because the programming is freaking amazing but really it's really simple so when in doubt always do a push pull leg exercise core exercise and some sort of corrective or some sort of like heavy carry like these are the things that coaches and people who are interested in learning about working out is what you need to focus on not something stupid that you saw on facebook 
that is going to give you shredded abs. It's not going to do that. And, you know, going into staff meetings and talking with other coaches about programming, you know, you get to a section where you're like, okay, I need to think of four different, you know, strength exercises for this client. And then you're trying to think of every possible exercise that's not the simple one that you should and you almost progress that client too quickly now when it comes to like injury prevention you the more the more you can go simply the better and the tough thing is you know clients always want the newest coolest exercise but in reality you need to keep it simple. If you went, like this is the analogy I give to all my clients, is that when you start training with me, it's like if you just signed up for a karate class. You're not going to learn all the black belt stuff first. You're going to learn everything from the white belt. And I don't even care where you came from because I've had millions of different clients, you know, tell me like, oh, I used to work out a lot in college. I used to deadlift. I used to do this. I used to do that. And I'm like, awesome. We're still going to go to the basics. Because most of the time, I've never, I've never seen a client tell me all those things and have them true to what they told me. And an example is like I had this one guy tell me like, oh, yeah, I used to back squat a lot, deadlift a lot. And I'm like, yeah, sure, okay. Um, we'll do the program and then after show me your form. And the form was just fucking god awful. Like just, just stop, right? My eyes are bleeding. And... You know, from a client's perspective, they think they could be doing something correctly, but if you don't have a coach with experience looking after them, they could be doing the wrong thing, and then over time, something's going to give. It's not going to happen right away. So say you're deadlifting with, like, a slightly rounded posture where your lumbar region is, you know, maybe not in that first week of you training that something's going to happen. Maybe three down, three months down the road, something will happen where you're like, mm, I pulled something and it doesn't feel that great. So the analogy I also like, I, I love analogies, by the way, and it connects to clients so easily. So the best way to put this into words is that those people that go onto the dance floor that think that they're really good dancers, but everybody around them are like, yeah, no, you should stop doing that. It's the exact same thing when it comes to the gym when clients think they're doing the exercise correctly, but from a coach's perspective, you're like, yeah, you should probably stop doing that because it's just going to cause further issues down the road. So if I had to break it down for anyone listening you know, focus on the basics and you can always go back to it. Like even for myself, when I'm programming, I'm not trying to do the hardest exercise that makes me look like I'm going to join Cirque du Soleil. You go back to the basics. Like think about Olympic weightlifters. They have three lifts that they practice all year round. They practice and practice and practice and somehow they're getting stronger. They're getting leaner and they're doing amazing things in their sport. So, like, what's the secret sauce? It's going back to the basics always. And, you know, they're not trying to find 
a exercise that they're balancing on like three medicine balls with a stability ball on their feet while doing push-ups and then jumping off it like no it, you don't need that crap and clients if you have a coach and you go into your session and they give you something that in your head you're like mm, I don't really think I can do that then it's probably an exercise that you shouldn't be doing and this is why I always go back to the basics because then you can build upon the pattern so much easier. So when you go from like a rehab sense, like this past uh, weekend, I did an, an assessment for my sister-in-law and she was complaining about hip pain while squatting. I'm like, okay, well, let's do an assessment. Let's see how your um, squat mechanics look like. And I already knew like there was something going on in her hip Further investigation, I'm like, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to start breathing. This sounds stupid, but a lot of people don't know how to breathe properly. Like, to actually breathe through your diaphragm, a lot of people actually have to use their brains and think about using their diaphragm and not their chest. So that was the first thing I gave her. I'm like, let's just breathe for 10 good reps. If you can't get to 10, we're going to restart and really focus on using your diaphragm. After a couple of minutes, she started getting the hang of it. I'm like, okay, perfect. Now you know how to breathe. So now let's groove the pattern of your squat. So even before getting her upright, I got on her hands and knees and just letting her rock back and forth while breathing properly in that squat pattern. Now I'm grooving the pattern. I'm like, okay, now let's get some more feedback. I got her against the wall, face forward, and wanted her squat as low as possible before her face hit the wall. Now she figured out what her range was. Now we have layers, like I said earlier. So she started with breathing. She started grooving the pattern, and then she started getting feedback of where her squat mechanics should stop, and now let's go load her with all those things that we just did, and her squat improved instantly, right? And I didn't do any, like, crazy thing that you might have seen on YouTube or Facebook. It's the basics, and people always tend to forget to always go back to them, and you know, as a younger coach, I used to do that all the time. Like, oh, I want to find new exercises. I want to do this. I want to do that. But really what people need is always going back to the basics. I've never had a general population client that was so advanced that I had no more ideas what to do. Because it's really easy to take the basic exercises and add more load, add more volume, add different things to the environment to make it more challenging, but still working the same thing. Now, I'm going to stop it there because I can ramble on about this over and over again. But actually, I'm going to add one more thing. It's called the shit test. So I was telling this to another client a couple of weeks ago is that there's this concept. I think Mike Boyle came up with it is that, you know, if you see an exercise and someone's doing it and it doesn't look quite right, you use the shit test. Does it look like shit? Yes then most likely it's shit. So when you see if you're in a public gym and someone's doing something you haven't seen before, keep watching. And if your brain does not say like, oh, that looks cool or wow, that looks really difficult to accomplish, then most likely it's an exercise that the person shouldn't be doing. It's this idea of like, I don't even know what you need to call it. It's, it's a circus act, like... <laughs> Don't fall victim to the exercises that look so challenging and so whatever. Like, the whole point is, is 
stop doing the circus acts, a circus act um, exercises and go back to the basics. Build upon those things and you'll get stronger, you'll lose fat, you'll feel good, and you have a lower chance of injury. And those are the things that a general population need. They don't need no fancy exercise. So if you are always squatting and split squatting and doing push-ups, doing an overhead press, doing a heavy carry, doing some sort of pulling exercise, stick to those and play around different rep schemes, different loading patterns, different volume things, descending ladders, ascending ladders, like time sets, whatever it is, but always stick to those basics. Like Dr. John Rusin, for example, who I am super excited about to interview in April, um, like he coined this whole idea from probably Dan John because he kind of started everything. Um, the idea of doing a push, a pull, a leg, a core, and a heavy like carry um, is what you need on a daily basis. You don't need anything else. And then maybe like some sprints at the end. But again, keep your programming, your exercises really simple. You have a lower chance of injuring yourself. And then you'll have this long period of time where you can train and see the results you want. Because the last thing you want to do is try a new exercise you saw online, injure your hip, and now you're out of commission to train for like three months because you tore something. We don't want that. What I want to talk about is this idea of bulletproofing your body. So, you know, the last year, I've noticed something about myself when I'm chatting with my clients is I'm starting to use my own ideas my own interpretations of other professionals in the industry and coming out with my own, I would say, system or principles and methods and philosophies on training. And I keep coming back to this word bulletproof. You know, when I'm explaining to a client, hey, we're doing this exercise in order to bulletproof X or Y or Z. We're doing this mobility exercise because I want to bulletproof your hips so you don't have pain the next day. And I keep coming back to that word and I really, really like it because it kind of erodes this like image in my head that I'm slowly building this armor around my clients so they can go into everyday life and succeed. So I started asking myself, okay, what is this bulletproof method or principle that I keep getting back to? Oh, that was my dog, if you can hear her shaking her collar. Um, and I wanted to, I, I broke it down. And I think this episode would be good for both the fitness enthusiast and um, trainers out there that are newer. And maybe you can emulate what I'm trying to do with my clients and bulletproof them as well. So I think the first step and I said this on my show so many times, it's got to go back to the basics. Like no matter where you are in your career, fitness journey, always go back to the basics and master them. Like if you really think about it, our industry, there's always like, oh, there's this new diet. Oh, there's this new exercise. And if you're not doing these things, you're going to be left behind. And they obviously require some prerequisites. And that's another word I use a lot. It's like, do you have the prerequisites to do this? Prereqs are like so crucial 
to your success. And I see this mistakes with um, trainers all the time. They get a new client and they just want to like throw at them every cool exercise they've seen on YouTube and then they're like, oh, look at me, I'm a fucking like elite trainer because I know all these like banded exercises and balance shit and you're standing on a BOSU ball with your eyes closed while I throw tennis balls at you and flicker the lights on and off and set fireworks at the same time. No, like master the basics. Like I don't even care if you've been lifting for 10 years how many of you have gone back to your like deadlift and reconstructed the whole thing to relearn it as perfectly as possible to break through that plateau? So going back to the foundations of everything. So my first step would be, does your client or do you even know how to breathe properly? You know, like the most simple thing I get people do, this is what I do in my assessment, is I'll get them laying down on their back. Their legs are bent, and I'll get one hand on their belly and one hand on their chest, and I'll tell them, I want you to take five deep breaths, and I want to see if they know how to use their diaphragm. And people tend to forget how important the diaphragm is in everything we do. And most people don't, like, think about it, but, you know, your diaphragm is directly related to all of your hip flexors. Now think about it, like your hip flexors do a lot of shit on a daily basis. And if something's connected to your hip flexor, that's going to cause a lot of influence on what you do. So if your diaphragm's not working properly, maybe your hip flexors are probably not working as they should. So in this test, I want to see if people know how to breathe. And nine out of 10 times, People breathe through their chest. And then the second portion is I'll ask them, okay, great. Now what I want you to do is only breathe into that bottom hand where your belly is. And they're like, okay. They go ahead and breathe. And you can see how much of a struggle it is for their brains to send the signal down to their body to breathe through their bellies. It's it's like painful to see. You're like, holy shit. Like people don't know how to breathe properly. And then my third test from there, like I I like to layer things, Um, I'll try to coach them. And I would say maybe seven out of 10 times, they still can't do it. So there's your first step to bulletproofing your body is learn how to breathe. Because every exercise you do, if you don't have proper breathing mechanics, shit is going to fuck up, right? Like, and I, that's another word or phrase I always use is like, Like, do this without fucking up your shit. And that's where I like to start. And say they show proficiency in learning how to breathe properly. And you know what? Side note. The reason why I like to go to the basics is I give the example of a karate class. The moment you sign up for karate, it would be, like, blasphemy if you're, like, you came in and you're, like, I want to do black belt shit. And the instructor will look at you like, get the hell out of my room, right? Everyone starts at white belt stuff, no matter where you come from. And when you show proficiency in every single movement, they'll give you that next level. So it's the same idea. That's the same concept. And again, all the stuff that I want to talk about has been around forever. And this is nothing new from me. I'm stealing shit from all different kind of coaches out there. And I will give credit where it's due. 
but I like to organize things that make sense for me. So after teaching how you know my clients should breathe, I want to work on their mobility. I want to see how their body moves. And for so many years, I used the FMS, you know, Eric Cressy's assessment correct and blah, 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 and corrective exercise, but I was kind of limited with their mobility with corrective exercise because they would get a little bit better and then it would hit a plateau. And then for all those people out there who listened to my previous episode about the FRC, I was like, fuck, yes, this is what I've been looking for. So my second step or layer to bulletproofing your body is learning how to move the joints as they should. Give those joints the rotations that they're supposed to do as much as possible on a daily basis. And that's where the car, so the controlled articular rotations come into play. I've been slowly implementing this with all my clients is learn how to put every single joint through their motion so then you can get that range of motion back. And that whole saying, if you don't use it, you lose it, holds true in this situation. The more you can move your joints, the better you're going to feel. So after that, when you know I layer the breathing, the cars, and getting movement through those joints, that's where I want to layer on top corrective exercise. You know, like the... You know, T-spine rotation exercises that have been, like, flooded on the internet, like, any kind of active straight leg raise corrective, like, anything from the FMS corrective realm is where I layer on top of the cars. And then from there, I like to jump into, like, stability stuff. And again, great cook stuff, chops and lifts, half kneel stances, and then I also like adding a lot of shoulder stability stuff, and this is where all the kettlebell stuff that I like is like, you know, farmer carries or bottom-up presses or, you know, single-arm farmer carries. Like, anything that's going to add stability, like the arm bar, too, is a great exercise, is what I like to layer on top. And then the next step is, like, let's add some fucking strength. Like, let's get you fucking strong to build some muscle. And it's another surefire way to bulletproof your body. That's another thing I keep telling people is that muscle... The more muscle you have, it's like the armor that's going to protect you from falls, aches and pains, disease, like anything. So that's where I like to layer, you know, like let's get heavy on the deadlift, let's get heavy on the squat, let's get heavy on the bench, like those foundational compound movements is like where I like to get to the next part. And then to layer on top of there, let's get some metabolic conditioning going. Like, let's push our fucking heavy sled for distance, rest as much as you need to, and let's push that thing again. Let's do a simple 20 on, 10 off with a jump rope. Let's see where we can push you to the limit for like five to 10 minutes, and then let's call that a day. So, you know, I think this kind of method and structure or hierarchy or whatever you want to call it is the best way to... Um, bulletproof your body and nutrition would be the same thing and you know over the years I really 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 like what precision nutrition does you know work on habits work on the foundational habits that everyone should know like eating protein at a you know palm size or let's get all the water in let's you know sleep at least seven hours a day and You know, it's kind of funny because a lot of people who do nutrition coaching with me online and I give them these simple things, they're like, 
why why are we focusing on sleep? I'm like, because you fucking sleep for three hours a day. That's a huge no-no. And they almost think, like, it has to be more complicated than something simple like that. And then they find it difficult to actually implement that habit. I'm like, well, no shit. It's ingrained in you that you can only sleep for three hours and function, but function at a very low level. So giving really basic stuff and building on top of it is how I look and like structure everything I do now with my clients and for myself, you know, like break it down to such a simple step where if you gave it as homework to somebody, they're like, Oh, I can do this. And that gives you a higher success rate. So I think for all the coaches and just regular Joes out there listening, like break it down. What's the easiest thing you can do? Like if your goal is X reverse engineer it to the most simple step and start there. You're going to have a higher success rate. You're going to crush it and then get to the next layer of it, you know? And I think from there, everyone will be really successful and have a body that most likely will be aesthetically pleasing if you're getting to a certain, you know, height of your hierarchy of my bulletproof program or whatever the hell you want to call it. And you're going to be able to move and feel better lift heavy shit and just become this overall badass in life and in the gym that you probably want to be. So today, what I am going to go into is a topic that I absolutely love to talk about, and it's the deadlift. The deadlift is probably my favorite freaking exercise because it's so badass It empowers you, and it does just wonders to your body. So that's why I want to bring it up, because me going into this new gym called Aura Fitness and Yoga, um, the way it's laid out is primarily they have giant group classes, and we split them up where Monday, Wednesday, Fridays are strength days, Tuesday, Thursdays and Saturdays are our metabolic conditioning, cardio days, or whatever the hell you want to call them. So the max we'll have is 20 people per class. We have a program laid out for each month. You progress, and there you have it, right? And the tough thing is seeing people, you know, when they have the barbell deadlift, and, you know, I walk by to go train my clients, and a lot of people don't have the prerequisites to actually deadlift with good form. And I've been trying my best to jump in on the classes to help people out. And it's like a simple little change that can, you know, create such a better looking um, deadlift. And I think a lot of coaches sometimes just skip steps. And it's not their fault. It's just they don't know any better because um, maybe they didn't, have, you know, read an article or watch a video of how to properly progress, and you're kind of left with, you know, missing holes in, I'll call it, your education for your nervous system to lift effectively. So I wanted to go through my own progression of how I get someone ready to dead, uh, to deadlift with good form, injury-free, and you know, feel good that they're progressing. So I think the best way to start this is from the assessment. 
And I think all the coaches out there and all the fitness enthusiasts, like you should put yourself through an assessment or your client through an assessment to actually see if they have what it takes to actually deadlift off the floor. And if they don't, what ways you should, you know, move your programming around so then they can effectively deadlift. Um, So what I do is I use the FMS, um, active straight leg raise. That tells me a lot. Most people fucking suck at this thing. And, you know, if they get a one or, like, a barely a two, I'm like, okay, we got some work to do. The second thing I'll do is check um, a simple toe touch. If you remember seeing a video with Gray Cook talking about how he tests uh, with Brett Jones, if someone is ready to deadlift off the floors, if they can't touch their toes without... You know their knees locked out they have no business you know deadlifting off the floor um, but that doesn't mean they can they shouldn't deadlift you should elevate it but we'll get to that later um, and then from there I do a modified toe touch test where where I'll take the FMS board have one foot on top of the FMS board where that knee will stay bent and then the other knee that's right beside it on the ground will stay locked out and then I want to see bilaterally if they can touch their toes or if the range of motion improves and this tells me there's something going on in their hips that if you you know play around with different angles you might get a extra couple inches of range of motion and you know you can go into other different um Assessments, but again, you got to be efficient as a coach. You don't want to like, all right, let's take an hour to figure out what the hell's going on with your hips. Um, but this tells me enough. So, for example, say someone can't touch their toes, they do the modified toe touch, they get a little, a couple more inches, but they still can't touch their toes. I'm like, okay, we're going to teach you how to hinge. And learning how to hinge, there's so many different ways. But here's what I do. There's something called the wall um, hinge touchback, whatever the fuck you want to call it. I'll get someone um, towards a wall, but their bum is facing the wall, and I want them to step, you know, maybe a foot, foot and a half, and I want them to push their hips back so their bum touches the wall, and I want their hands to come forward as counterbalance, almost like if you're going to do a broad jump and using your hands as counterbalance. And this teaches them how to hinge properly because most people general population they have no idea what the hell hinge and squat means and how to do that with their body so this is how i get them uh learning how to hinge their hips and you know it's kind of bulletproof because you know it's like if they can't touch their butt against the wall they're squatting And then they're like, oh, okay. So they get that external feedback when their bum touches the wall. The other one I like to use is I'll take a dowel from the FMS board, whatever, two by four from Home Depot, it doesn't matter. And I will get them against the bench, calves against the bench, standing up straight, having the dowel behind their back, across their bum straight, and pushing their hands against the dowel to engage their lats. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go through my YouTube page. I have that video, the dowel hinge. And you can either put it up like that or you can have it against, you know, tailbone, shoulder blades, and head, kind of like the FMS inline lunge. 
to teach them how to keep neutral spine. And then I want them to hinge and I tell them, if your calves come off the bench, you're squatting. Oh, you guys hear that? That's the, uh, that's the goose. But now there's another one on, on the roof. They're recruiting. Sorry, I'm totally like being the kid with ADD looking out the window like, oh, a butterfly, but it's a goose. Um, where was I? Right. Um, if the calves stay on the bench, they are hinging properly. Now, I found that this works with some, and sometimes it doesn't. So what I do simply is I flip them around. I'm like, I want an inch or two where your knees are away from the bench. And as you come down, I want your knees to actually touch the bench in that hinge position because we all know that when you deadlift, it's not a stiff-legged deadlift. You're going to have some knee flexion to properly engage the movement. And then this is kind of like the start of learning the hinge pattern and the deadlift. Now, the next part is I want to do an elevated kettlebell deadlift. Now, depending on the individual, this will vary in height. Usually, best case scenario, I'll take a 45-pound plate and then a you know 16-kilo kettlebell for the average person. And then <clears throat> this will differ person to person, but say they're really, really bad, you can put three 45-pound plates and the 16-kilo kettlebell, um, 16 kilo kettlebell. Or you can have four 45-pound plates and an 8-kilo kettlebell because maybe the person has been in a car accident, has low back uh, pain sometimes, but teaching them how to hinge and lift properly is going to be a really good thing for them. So you want to ensure that you figure out where your client should start and get them learning how to lift properly in that hinge pattern. Now, from there, you simply take a 45-pound plate lower and lower and lower until they can deadlift off the floor with good form. Now, say maybe that um, you know they still can't touch their toes, and when they get to the ground, it's like, oh, shit they're not going to be able to deadlift the floor. That's fine. Keep them on a 45-pound plate. Start loading it heavier with a heavier kettlebell. And if you run out of kettlebells, go double kettlebell. That would be my next step. Let's do double kettlebell um, deadlifts. You know, most gyms will go up to a 24-kilo kettlebell. You get your client there. They're strong. They're doing like 10 reps. They're like, this is fucking easy. Let's go two 16-kilo kettlebells. We have 32 Kilos, that's a pretty you know, heavy deadlift for general population, and that's awesome. And then the next thing I would do from there is introduce the trap bar deadlift. Now, the people with you know shitty mobility and they still can't touch their toes, I find this is a good substitute because they can add a little bit more knee flexion, and I like the trap bar deadlift because it's almost a hybrid of a squat and a deadlift. And I find that it's so easy to coach. I get people to stand in the middle of the trap bar or hex bar, whatever you want to call it, and I just tell them, lift it up. And they get right into that deadlift position so easy. And it's so functional because I'm like, think about you have 13 bags of groceries on the ground. 
You gotta pick them all up because you're not gonna do a second trip because fuck that noise. We're going into the house, all one trip, with the keys in the hand, and we're gonna open the door and drop all the groceries off one trip. And then they just get that. They're like, yes, I know what you mean. I can do this. So, trap bar, for most people who can't touch their toes on a toe touch test, they're able to deadlift off the floor. Again, this is going to be really individual, so if they can't maintain that neutral spine and proper posture, throw in the 45-pound plates on each side of the weight. Boom, done. You can load up that pattern. If you remember um, Bradley Cooper, who um, was training and acting in... Um, that movie American Sniper, there is a clip of him trap bar deadlifting off racks or whatever elevated thing he was on, and he was like up to four or 500 pounds, and if you follow Ben Bruno, he was the coach training him, and he was saying he had the shittiest mobility ever, but he still loaded his trap bar deadlift to get that muscle on him, and he elevated it. There's no rule that says you need to deadlift off the floor, so that would be my next step. Then... If I really wanted to progress them, I would um, really work on their mobility work, like hammer it out in their warm-ups week in, week out, and eventually they'll be able to do it. And I've seen this happen with clients. And if you've been listening to my show for a while, I've had clients for years, like years. I have one client that's been with me almost as long as I've been coaching. So he's been with me for seven years, and I've seen huge improvements in mobility. I have have had about three or four clients where their toe touch was like to their kneecap, and now they can touch their toes. It just takes some patience and time, and now I'm introducing the straight bar deadlift. Now, to get to that, I would go from the trap bar to the straight bar. If they have the mobility requirements, Fuck it. Let's throw them onto the uh, to the straight bar and see what happens. This is where um, you need to play around with body position. Say you know they can touch their toes, but it doesn't look right. Doing different stances, like maybe they can go into a sumo and get that position. If that works, stick with it. If that doesn't work, get them to the conventional setup. Play around with hand positions. Play around with foot positions. Like. Our hips are so different from one person to another. Simply moving your like feet out a little bit or maybe the right, um, right foot out a little bit or right foot in a little bit, that can play a huge role in the mechanics of how you lift. And if it still doesn't look right, elevate the conventional deadlift. Put it into a, um, a squat rack and elevate it with the like safety bars. Like Why not? And just do um, the straight bar deadlift like that. And then that's how you progress. Like, that's how I go from zero to 100 to get people strong. And you got to remember, like, not everyone is meant to straight bar deadlift. I've had some clients where, you know, we get to the double kettlebell deadlift, and, like, that's all they can do. And I've done everything I could, took them to physio, to Cairo. It's just their bodies are not meant to trap bar or straight bar. And then you get to get creative. Like, let's do single leg deadlifts and load the shit out of it and get fucking strong, right? Like, you can go double kettlebell. I love doing the barbell single leg deadlift. Like, that's so badass. And that's kind of my system on getting people deadlifting heavy. 
And, you know, everything is an individual approach. And I think coaches need to understand that. There's no cookie-cutter program, cookie-cutter exercise. Everyone's an individual. You need to get that through your head. Just because the person beside you is deadlifting and you've been deadlifting for years and you're you know, weight has not gone up, but everything kind of just feels off and something hurts, like, fuck, maybe you're not meant to deadlift, and that's okay. Maybe the back squat is what you need. Load that up, right? And that could be um, another topic is how I progress them through the back uh, back squat, but I want to keep this short and sweet, and I'm going to leave it there. Now, today, what I want to go over is the deadlift because um, recently I had a bunch of people reach out to me um, asking about you know my comment about you know if you can't touch your toes you shouldn't be deadlifting and I wanted to touch on this topic a little further because there's a lot in play here when I made that comment so I teach the deadlift to every single client and I alter the deadlift based on what they can and can't do. So, you know, an example would be someone brand new that I, you know, it's their second session, they will be deadlifting in some shape or form. You know, that can be learning how to hinge using a dowel or they could be at a point where I want them deadlifting a kettlebell off a lifted platform. Or, you know, down the road, they progress and they're finally barbell deadlifting off the floor. But in order to do, you know, the holy grail of deadlifting with the barbell off the floor, you need some prerequisites, um, you know, to be able to do it. This question is a very loaded question because everyone's individual. Everyone has different structures, different length of levers, and you know who knows if they've had an injury. And without me actually seeing you in person and doing some sort of assessment, or even with my online clients doing in a, an assessment to see how you move, there, there's a really it's a really difficult to give you a black and white answer of you know if you do X, you'll be able to deadlift off the floor in three months but I can give you some typical scenarios that I see with individuals that I can eventually get you know them to deadlifting off the floor so I have one client in particular that I have in my head that I'm thinking about where I trained her for three years straight and in that last year was when she finally was able to um, you know barbell deadlift um, pretty well and when I first started with her um, just like every good coach should be doing is an assessment so my assessment has evolved over the years and you know with her when I got her to do the toe touch test meaning feet together knees locked out I want to see you touch your toes her hands couldn't clear her kneecaps so there's already an issue. Um, no previous injuries, uh, just knee pain when she would walk, uh, when she would run. And you know we had to modify certain single leg exercises, but um, you know we put on some corrective exercise 
um, selection that I thought would help her improve. Now, before getting so technical into this topic, the idea of you know like rehab equals training, training equals rehab. If you create a you know, well-written program for an individual or the fitness enthusiast listening, if you have a good program that's designed for you specifically and not something you pulled off the internet, all those little aches and pains and weird stuff that your body does or limitations will go away to a certain degree if you follow a certain program designed for you. If you find a program online and you're like, okay, sweet, there's deadlifts, there's heavy back squats and pull-ups, you know, yeah, you'll build some strength, but the quality of your movement's not going to improve if you don't have specifics. So based on my assessment on my client, I'm like, okay, she can't touch her toes, her squat is horrible, her active straight leg raise is barely a one, and she has knee pain. So we're building a foundation. Things like bird dogs, dead bugs, chops and lifts that Grey Cook made um, really famous, and the Turkish getup, and single leg deadlifts, learning how to hinge, and squat patterning were a huge, huge staple in her program. And we hammered out those movements week after week, months after months, and to see if it worked, at that three month mark, I wanted to see if she improved. So we did a simple um, you know, retest of my assessment, and you know, lo and behold, her toe touch improved a little bit, her squat improved a little bit, and her knee pain was kind of like, you know, one week she would have it, the next week she uh, didn't have it, and it was kind of all over the place. And I'm like, okay, we're on the right track. And, you know, giving her more exercises that focused on, um, you know, her tight areas. Um, I can't get into all the specifics because if you go on to the functional movement um, website, they have a huge library of, you know, corrective exercises. Now, the other thing I, you know, layered on top of it is um, getting her to see a physical therapist and a chiropractor to, you know, speed up the process. And, you know, with all this combined for a long period of time, she was able to get new ranges of motion. And the other thing you need to know is the difference between active range of motion and passive range of motion. So an example is if I have you laying down and I'm going to stretch out your hamstring, you know, I can take a, uh, my hand and lift your leg to a certain part. Now, if we put um, your leg down and I ask you to go lift your leg by yourself to get to the same range I pushed you in, you're most likely not going to get it. You'll probably be 20 degrees less than what... Um, you were, what I was able to do to push you forward. So there is a loss of active you know, mobility. Like you can get there because if I push your leg, you have it, but you, know, you need to communicate to your nervous system that, hey, I want this range of motion, give it to me. And if you constantly ask your nervous system by doing corrective exercise and rebuilding patterns, then you will gain that mob um, mobility in time. But the key thing here is the consistency are you going to be consistent enough each week to build that, you know, resiliency in your body? Now, the other thing, too, is, 
you know, how... Actually, even before I get into that, the reason why I use the Turkish getup a lot with all my clients is that there's, you know, seven little movements in there. And it's kind of funny that the FMS is built around seven movements that a child can do. And those movements that a child can do are integral to how our, you know, how our bodies are supposed to function. But over time, with us growing up and sitting at a desk and working 10 hours every day in front of a computer, the, our ability to do what a kid could do goes away. And then when you go to the gym and you're trying to touch your toes and you're like, fuck, I can't do it, what do I do? I would look at exercises that complement the patterns in that FMS assessment. So, you know, there are certain exercises that, you know, say for the hurdle step exercise in the FMS, how do I improve that? Let's look at hip function. Let's look at, you know, hip stability. So chops and lifts will help that pattern. And the Turkish getup, if you look at it really closely, it covers all your bases in the FMS. So I give the Turkish getup to every single client, no matter what, to build that resiliency and movement patterns and movement recognition in order for them to succeed and build those movement patterns they had before as a child. And over time, you know, it will improve and you'll see a lot of progression and then you can do a lot of fun stuff for yourself or in your client's situation. Now, say you've done all the stuff that I've said, you've picked a bunch of good corrective exercises, you've seen some improvement, but maybe you've hit a plateau or roadblock and you can't get any further. And this is where it comes to, you know, the structure of the body. You know, say if you look at the hips, for example, that structure will differ person to person. If you look up Dr. Stuart McGill's work, he was able to figure out that there are actually six different types of pelvises among the human race. So depending where your heritage is from will dictate what kind of pelvis you have, and that pelvis will dictate what kind of movement you're allowed to do. So a good example Asian pelvises are able to squ- uh, squat ass to grass. If you look at, you know, the Olympic weightlifters in China, they have phenomenal squatting patterns. They can get so deep with ease. And then if you look at most American um, Olympic weightlifters, they have a little trouble. They're pretty good, but they have a little trouble getting down there. And, you know, if you are of Asian descent, you're going to have an easier time squatting deeply compared to someone who has a, you know, North American hip where they can get stuck around that nine degree mark. Now you can improve that, but you have limitations of structure. Like you can't have that ball and socket joint go any further when it's just grinding against bone because you're going to hurt yourself. So that plays a huge role. And how do you figure out what kind of pelvis you have? This is where you go to physical therapists and chiros that have an exercise background where they can do something called hip scouring, where they can actually show you where your, you know, femur and, you know, your hip socket likes to sit if they had to put you into a squat position. Um, And then to go even further into structural um, kind of pathway is how 
long your spine is and the length of your femurs and the length of your tib and fib and your um and your shin bone like all of those play huge roles so someone like me i'm eastern european out of uh, poland if you look at polish uh people they're not very tall you know average height would be anywhere from like 5'5 to 5'10 and a lot of Polish guys come into like strongman events or Olympic weightlifting because their levers are shorter and if you you know studied biomechanics in school you know shorter levers are able to generate more um, power and velocity so that's why a lot of shorter people go into Olympic weightlifting Hence, you know, the Chinese are doing really well in Olympic weightlifting because there are shorter people, they have better lever lengths, and they can, they're just natural born squatters and deadlifters. Whereas someone who's a lot taller, like six foot, getting under a barbell to squat or deadlift is going to cause some issues and you're going to have to manipulate stances and positions in order for them to succeed. Now, let's say we go back to my example of your spine some like i have i have a bunch of clients that have long um, torsos so their spine's a little bit longer so when they reach down for that barbell to um, deadlift it all they're going to feel is their lower back or it just won't feel right so with someone like that i will switch them up to a sumo stance where they're a little bit more upright and they are built to be in that pattern remember Deadlifting off the floor is not a rule that you need to be able to do. Unless you are a competitive powerlifter, then I would be worried. Just because your friend or someone on YouTube or someone on your Facebook is deadlifting straight bar in a conventional stance doesn't mean you have to do the same thing. So people with longer torsos, and I don't have any research to back this up, but I see a pattern, is that they usually have some sort of disc issues um, over time when they've been constantly like driving a square peg into a round hole by force because they want to deadlift um, conventionally because everyone else does and I've seen this happen and with this particular client in mind she has I believe if I can remember correctly five bulging discs from like L5 to L1 and I'm like Jesus, what have you been doing? And after looking at her history before training with me, a lot of like bodybuilding style deadlifting and stiff legged deadlifts and with a long torso like that, I would almost assume that that had a role with it. So, you know, maybe you are actually not built to conventional deadlift. You got to find what works for you. And, you know, to layer this even over um, on top, like, what are your previous injuries? That has a huge role. Have you, you know, broken a leg? Have you torn something in your hip? Have you had back surgery? Have you, I don't know, um, broken your foot? Have you broken your ankle? Have you, like, let's even look at, you know, upper extremities. I don't even talk about uh, lower body injuries because that has a huge role in how you deadlift. What if your upper body has limited mobility and your lower body's good to go? We haven't even opened up that can of worms because I've seen a lot of people with horrible T-spine mobility and horrible rounded posture of their shoulders. And if they go any lower past, I don't know, uh, knee height in their straight bar deadlift, it just becomes a rounded back. Like, there's so much at 
like stake here when it comes to conventional deadlifting it's really hard to give someone a black and white answer because I've had people message me online be like hey my deadlift sucks I can't go off the floor what should I do and it's like well fuck like <laughs> I need to see you physically either online on doing an assessment or in person and it's there's just so many things at play so I would if I was you either find a coach or physical therapist that is exercise based has you know um, a lot of experience with the FMS to give you a solid answer or you apply to my online coaching where I can actually get you filming a full assessment and I can get a better idea how you move and figure out what you should be doing so hopefully that gives you an idea of why and how people should be deadlifting and you know if you have any questions feel free to um, you know send them my way because I want to help as many people as possible even if you want to film your deadlift and send it to me for sure I will look at it I'll try my best to give you an answer but the best way is to have someone actually looking at you and assessing you in different positions and ways and angles on video and everything like that so I'm going to end it there all right so that's going to wrap up this episode you guys hopefully you enjoyed this one and hopefully it answered some of your questions that you might be wondering in the gym when you're exercising and going what the fuck am I doing anyway I'm going to end it there. Hopefully you're enjoying the show. Be sure to hit the show notes, add me on Facebook, add me on Instagram, and also subscribe to my YouTube channel. And also in the show notes, which you can find all of those links, is the pre-sale list for my new book, The Ironclad Body Training System, Volume 2. And be sure to put your name and email to get the first link sent out to you personally to be able to purchase it before anyone else And I am super excited to bring that project up. Finally, I'm almost done finishing finishing all the last-minute changes on the book. And hopefully, New Year, January, February, it's going to release. So don't be waiting around to get that done. So hit the show notes and have an awesome freaking day, you guys. You got this.